Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard and today is Thursday, September 29th, 2022. It's been 3,134 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 217 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, we assess the so-called Putin line east of the Oskil River is in collapse. Second, we maintain Russia's mobilization efforts are on the brink of catastrophe due to corruption, a lack of preparation, violation of the social contract with the Russian people, and conscripts being sent en masse to Ukraine without vital equipment or training. Third, We assess that dissatisfaction with mobilization will increase as news of the events in Donetsk, Luhansk, and Kharkiv filter into the public sphere. Fourth, we assess the explosions on the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines have a significant probability of being Russian false flag operations, due to a statement made by Gazprom. Fifth, our assessment that the broader mobilization and breaking of the social contract with the Russian people could increase the risk of political upheaval remains accurate, with civil unrest continuing. Sixth, we maintain we are in the mutually assured destruction instability paradox due to irresponsible language from the Kremlin and no effort to clarify statements made by Dmitry Medvedev, deputy chairman of the Russian Security Council. Seventh, our assessment that results of the sham referendums would not change the tactics or strategy of Ukraine or its Western supporters was accurate. Eighth, We maintain our assessment that as the situation for Russian troops in Kherson worsens due to supply issues and battlefield conditions, Russian troops will seek to surrender. And finally, we maintain our assessment that the Russian military in Ukraine is combat-destroyed and has no meaningful way to respond to the ongoing and accelerating collapse. Let's get some regional updates, starting with the Kherson counteroffensive and Mykolaiv. Ukraine continues to maintain tight operational security, with limited information released. There was some information from Russian sources, but it was of very low quality. See, when Russia is suffering a defeat, the historical pattern from the Russian mill-blogging community is to stop coverage in that area and to make unverifiable claims of massive Ukrainian casualties on other fronts. The General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, reported that Ternovipodi was shelled. 
we consider the settlement a no-man's land where territorial control constantly changes. The only verifiable fighting was in Bezimen, the one in Kherson. Russian forces again attempted to advance from the area of Chekhalov. The reports by pro-Russian sources that the Inulets River bridgehead collapsed on September 27th were false. Operational Command South, or OCS, reported the Ukrainian Air Force completed six airstrikes and ground forces launched 220 fire missions. Suppress and destroy enemy air defense activity continued, with two radar stations destroyed in Kherson. Russian troop concentrations in Cherivne, supporting the attack on Ukrainian-controlled Bezimen, were attacked by Ukrainian aviation. Two groups of Russian troops staged to cross the Dnipro River in Olishki were attacked by rockets fired from HIMARS. Two electronic warfare stations in Berislav were also destroyed. Ukraine maintained fire control over the Dnipro River crossing, concentrating on the semi-functional bridging repair at the Kachovka Dam and on the south bank of the Dnipro in Novokachovka. There are reports that a gas pipeline in Russian-controlled Brilivka exploded and is burning out of control. Residents in Kherson, which is 45 kilometers away, reported they could see the glow of the fire in the night sky. NASA Fire Information for Resource Management Systems, or FIRMS, showed a significant heat anomaly southwest of Prilivka. A video showed at least one residential building completely engulfed in flames. There were no reports of large-scale gas service outages or claims of an attack or sabotage at the time of recording. An S-300 anti-aircraft missile used for a ground attack roll struck Mykolaiv. We'll have more information on that in the War Crimes and Human Rights segment. Our overall assessment in Kherson and Mykolaiv is unchanged from September 11th. We recapped it on Monday's episode around minute 3 or 4. Let's move on to Dnipropetrovsk and northern Zaporizhia. The International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, reported that the explosions at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant on September 28th were caused by animals moving through a minefield that Russian forces set up around the facility. A third mine exploded 50 meters from the edge of the power plant early on Thursday, Kiev time. IAEA Director General Rafael Mariano Grossi expressed deep concern about this week's landmine explosion so close to the ZNPP. Valentin Reznichenko, Dnipropetrovsk Oblast Administrative and Military Governor, reported that Nikopol was hit by artillery and grad rockets fired by multiple launch rocket systems, or MLRS. The attack damaged 10 houses, industrial infrastructure, and farm buildings. Now to the Donbass region, starting with southern Zaporizhia. Honestly, there wasn't any significant military action in the region that we can report due to operational security. The artillery fire, however, between Russia and Ukraine increased after a lull yesterday. There was still only sporadic activity from the Donetsk-Zaporizhia administrative border to Huliapola to Orihiv. In Melitopol, collaborator Olena Shapurova, the Russian-appointed head of the Department of Education for the city, was injured in a car bombing attack. In southwestern Donetsk, the Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR, militia did not make any claims about ground fighting or successes on the battlefield. 
They did, however, report Ukrainian forces launched over 200 fire missions on the occupied territory. Officials claim that elements of the 1st Army Corps, supported by the Russian Federation Armed Forces, or RFAF, destroyed three tanks and four armored personnel carriers. Both the GSAFU and Russian sources reported minimal fighting. Elements of the 1st Army Corps of the DNR continued probing Ukrainian defenses for weaknesses near Zelizny. A spelling mistake made by the GSAFU created confusion among the analysis community, stating that Ukrainian forces had pushed back attacks on Ozeryanivka on September 28th. They likely meant Ozaryanivka, which in Ukrainian is only one letter different. There was positional fighting in Pervomaiske and near Pisky. Pro-Russian sources provided a terse assessment, stating that goals, quote, were not achieved, and DNR troops suffered heavy losses. Russian drone video showed the nature of the fighting in the area, with a single soldier of the DNR engaging four Ukrainian soldiers at a drainage culvert on the broken remains of the E-50 ring road. Despite being hit by a mortar round and a grenade, two Ukrainian soldiers remained in the fight and were able to retreat under their own power. The DNR militia soldier advanced over the berm to the roadbed to discover the force he was fighting was larger than he expected. The four Ukrainian soldiers didn't pursue. They likely didn't know they were fighting against a single soldier. We believe the video, recorded earlier based on weather and ground conditions, is critical to watch, as it shows war's true nature. See, the true nature of war comes down to statistical odds. And if a person's soft, squishy flesh will be in the way of hot metal moving in their direction. As incredible as it may seem that a mortar and grenade can land that close to soldiers and still be survivable, flying shrapnel is very fickle. As always, we link to the video in our full situation report on Patreon. Multiple Russian sources reported that Ukraine launched a small offensive in Marinka and was able to recapture key defensive positions. They did not elaborate. Pro-Russian mill blogger Rybar repeated the terse assessment, stating the DNR militia, quote, did not achieve their goals and suffered losses, end quote. Marinka's most critical defensive position is an old heap of mining debris in the southeast corner of the town. Positional fighting has been happening around the hill, which the DNR captured in early August, for weeks. It was believed that the hill was the gateway to Marinka, and at one point Russian troops had advanced all the way to the center of the town. Ukrainian forces supported by artillery and close air support have been grinding back territory for almost a month. The 1st Army Corps of the DNR attempted to improve their positions near Pobida again, without success again, and continued their attacks on the eastern edge of Novomikhailivka. Finally, there was renewed fighting south of Pavlivka. Russian mill bloggers continue to be convinced a larger counteroffensive will be launched from Vuladar. In the Bakhmut area? Nope, let's just get this over with. Only light fighting was reported south of Bakhmutska, with no change in the situation. Private military company or PMC Wagner Group reportedly continued fighting near Vesela Dolina, but has been unable to advance from the electrical substation. There was only positional fighting near Zaitseve the Zaitseve southeast of Bakhmut. PMC Wagner only fought skirmishes near Ozaryanivka, Odradivka, and Mikolaivka Druha. 
Major General and aspiring dentist Dandan Ramzan Kadyrov claimed that Chechen forces were fighting in the area and making progress. But there was nothing to support that they were actually in the region. We have repeatedly documented the growing friction between PMC Wagner and the Kadyrovites due to Akhmat's stolen valor claims that Kadyrov and his command staff have made. The 1st Army Corps of the DNR, 3rd Brigade, continued attempts to advance on Mayorsk and likely wish that the Kadyrovites were actually there and still doing the fighting. Let's move on to northeast Donetsk and Luhansk. The situation for Russian forces in northeastern Donetsk and southeastern Kharkiv continues to be dire. Russian defensive lines northeast of Lehman and east of the Oskil Reservoir have collapsed. The ground lines of communication, called G-locks, those are supply lines, between Torske and Kremina and Makivka in Luhansk and Torske Zarichne have been remotely mined with anti-tank weapons. Videos and photos showed that Ukrainian troops had fully liberated Novoselivka, further tightening the encirclement of Russian troops in Droboshevi, Lehman, and potentially Zarichne. Pro-Russian source War Gonzo has reported conflicting information, stating that there were attacks on the southern edge of Torske and then appearing to walk back the claim. Semyon Pegov, the head of War Gonzo, isn't known for his conflict report bravery, Despite being caught making fake combat videos, he appeared in Torske on September 28th, which at least hints that the security situation is stable to the east. Pegov also made a false claim that Droboshevi was, quote, crawling with NATO forces, end quote. Russian journalists have frequently blamed defeats on fighting NATO troops and not Ukrainian forces. The claim indicates that the situation in Droboshevi has likely reached a tipping point, and Lehman is fully encircled or on the brink. Pegov also released a short video, allegedly from within Droboshevi. One of our exceptional analysts was able to geolocate Pegov's location and validate it was likely recorded on September 29th, Kiev time, just before we published the situation report. He was reporting from the furthest northern tip of Torsky, on the eastern edge of the reservoir. Our research placed him 15 kilometers east of Droboshevi. Thanks to his report and terrible operational security, or OPSEC, we can see the side road parallel to the east bank of the Zherebets River has not been mined and isn't under complete artillery control of Ukrainian forces. Serhii Haidai, Luhansk Oblast Administrative and Military Governor, reported that the remains of the Russian 20th Combined Arms Army units deployed to reinforce Lehman were attacked suffering heavy losses. Two tank platoons staffed by poorly trained conscripts lost two main battle tanks, while the others were incapable of effectively fighting against Ukrainian troops. Moving on to the Kharkiv region. Ukraine has implemented tight operational security on activity east of the Oskil River. It was revealed that the video showing the liberation of Kupiansk Vuzlovi was recorded on September 21st and not released until a week later. Pictures from Pidliman showed that Russian troops had withdrawn a second time from the Pidvushsochin village House of Culture. There has not been an official statement from the Ukrainian government that the village has been liberated. Photos on September 18th showed the Ukrainian flag being raised at the same building. However, 
Russian troops flooded into Borova and Pidlimin on September 19th, pushing advanced units of the Ukrainian light infantry back across the Oskil River. In the Cherniv and Sumy region, Dmitro Zhivitsky, Sumy Oblast administrative and military governor, reported the Hromada of Krasnopilia was hit by artillery shells, damaging two homes, victory gardens, and high-voltage power lines. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at malcontentnews. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. The United States has announced a new military aid package to Ukraine valued at $1.1 billion. The latest package includes 18 high-mobility artillery rocket system, that's HIMARS, M142 launchers with ammunition, 150 armored high-mobility multipurpose wheeled vehicles, those are HMMWVs, or more affectionately known as Humvees or Hummers, 150 tactical vehicles, a.k.a. three-axle trucks, 40 trucks and trailers to transport heavy equipment, two radars for unmanned aerial systems, 20 multi-mission radars, counter-unmanned aerial systems, or CUAS, tactical secure communications systems, surveillance equipment and optics, explosive ordnance disposal, or EOD, a.k.a. bomb disposal equipment, body armor, and additional funding to support military training, maintenance, and sustainment. Ukraine will now have 34 M142 HIMARS launchers and 8 M270 or German Mars II launchers. Concerns about maintaining an adequate supply of M30 and M31 rockets to support Ukraine while maintaining United States combat readiness have been raised. While the HIMARS launchers get the most attention, in our assessment, the bigger story is the humble Humvees, the tactical trucks, and the military specification 18-wheelers. Ukraine has been pleading for more trucking capacity to support field logistics. Another story within the story is that the 20 CUAS being provided to Ukraine were co-developed with Israel, which authorized the release of its military technology for the first time. The Iranian Shahed-136 combat drone is based on a design reverse-engineered from United States Predator drones which Iran shot down. Working with Israel, the United States developed a counter-system to the Iranian drones based on the known weaknesses of the original Predator design. A fun fact, the United States has provided Ukraine $19 billion in military security assistance since 2014. Lithuania announced their nation was providing Ukraine with 25,000 winter uniforms and supporting equipment. An additional 10,000 uniforms will be purchased in January 2023. This is in addition to almost 200,000 winter uniforms and gear already committed to Ukraine by the United States, Canada, United Kingdom, Finland, and other nations. In a surprising report from Russian state media agency TASS, the Russian Ministry of Defense publicly admitted that the domestic surveillance and combat drone programs of the Russian Federation had not fulfilled their mission requirements. Russian Colonel Igor Ishuk reported that the homegrown drones lack anti-jamming technology, radiation warning systems, and identification friend or foe, or IFF, systems. To clarify, really quickly here, 
Radiation warning systems refers to the microwave signals used by radar to detect and target aerial vehicles. Okay? Put your shovel away. There is no need to build your backyard bunker. Russian Orlan 10 observation drones that have been shot down have been produced using consumer Canon DSLR cameras for optics and disposable water bottles for gas tanks. The Orlan 30 drone supports Russian laser-guided artillery shells and can paint a target. However, Russia has run out of Orlan 30s due to combat losses. A senior United States Department of Defense official reports that the first groups of mobilized conscripts have already arrived in Ukraine, saying on the record, quote, I think the first portions of the mobilized members of Russian society have, in fact, made it into Ukraine in small numbers. Just the mechanics of outfitting that size of a force is very difficult, end quote. The official did not have information on how many troops were in country or their destination. This report is supported by recent Russian troops captured by Ukrainian forces in the last 48 hours. Russia has requested the United Nations Security Council to hold an emergency meeting about the destruction of the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines, where it is widely expected the Kremlin will blame the United States. The messaging in the disinformation space coming from Moscow is United States President Joe Biden said he would destroy the pipeline in February. I mean, except that he didn't, he meant to block its activation. And that the United States wants to control the global energy markets to prevent the European Union from becoming a superpower in itself. We are seeing the story perpetuated on our own social media channels. Look, the truth matters. And the perpetrators are unknown at this time. It is critical to remind our audience that the Russian Federation publicly abandoned the Nord Stream 2 pipeline in July 2022, after reaching an agreement with Mongolia and China for the power of Siberia 2 natural gas pipeline, Russian Energy Minister Alexander Novak said in a television interview that the new pipeline, scheduled to be completed in 2030, was the Nord Stream 2 replacement. Minister Novak also said that Nord Stream 2 was abandoned because, quote, the United States took a very dim view, end quote, of the pipeline, over concerns about European dependence on Russian energy. The first section of the Power of Siberia 2 pipeline will be online in 2023, connecting the terminal at Lake Baikal to the existing Power of Siberia 1 line. Russia ended all natural gas deliveries through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, citing its European customers' hostile diplomatic environment. The Kremlin vowed not to restore gas flow until economic sanctions are lifted. Some industry experts believe that neither Nord Stream 1 or 2 are repairable, as natural gas leaks from the allegedly closed pipelines. France announced it would train Ukrainian soldiers at bases in Poland. Recruits will undergo a five-week NATO training, which will begin before the end of the year. The first large grouping to see combined arms combat to go through the training program established in the late spring by the United Kingdom was heavily involved in the liberation of Kharkiv. Speaking of training, let's talk about Russian mobilization. Clashes in Dagestan between Russian security officials and protesters continued in Makhachkala. Violence has reportedly increased, with protesters being arrested, beaten, and gunfire directed over their heads. With the threat of arrests and gunfire, the groups have gotten smaller, 
with an estimated 100 people squaring off against Russian officials. A recruiting office in Novosibirsk, Russia, was firebombed by anti-mobilization protesters. Russian state media reported that only the outside of the building was damaged and a suspect had been arrested. Residents in Russian-occupied Mariupol received a text message requesting all eligible men of military age to report to the local enlistment office. Russia has stepped up stealth mobilizations in the occupied territories in an attempt to shore up the ranks of the DNR and LNR militias, because remember, the 1st and 2nd Army Corps are currently combat-destroyed. In news that should shock no one at this point, Investigative reporters with Gulagu.net documented how PMC Wagner Group leader Russian oligarch Yevgeny Prigozhin is fleecing the Kremlin. Moscow is paying $70,000 to $100,000 per prison convict recruited to PMC Wagner. The money is supposed to cover their training, transportation to Ukraine, salary, and equipment. Gulagu alleges that some convict mercenaries are simply billeted in LNR hotels, while Wagner cashes the check. In a more serious allegation, the report claims that convicts are reported as killed in action and then issued a new ID card so that the private military company can double-bill Moscow. If the dollar figures are accurate and annualized, Moscow pays $140,000 to $200,000 for each convict sent to Ukraine. The life expectancy of penal unit members has been reported to be three weeks. Three senior defense officials from Finland and the Baltic states reported that Russia has peeled away up to 80% of its military forces from the western Russia frontier and deployed them to Ukraine. In January 2022, 30,000 Russian troops watched the border of Finland, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. The number may now be as low as 6,000. That's equal to one well-staffed brigade. Russia hasn't transferred military aircraft with the Air Force or vessels from the Northern Fleet, but it has drawn down military vehicles, armor, and anti-aircraft systems. Satellite images show that some missile bases have been completely abandoned. Yonatan Visevyov, Secretary General of the Estonian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, said in an interview with Foreign Policy Today, quote, They threw almost everything they had at Ukraine— but that is a very narrow way of analyzing threats. The immediate direct military threat to the Baltic region is obviously low at the moment because there are no professional troops at our borders. But that is not to say that Russia is not dangerous. End quote. Our favorite FSB colonel, wanted war criminal and Kremlin pariah Igor Gherkin-Strelkov told his audience that Ukraine has less than one year of existence left if the Russian Federation provides the mobilized troops with what they need to be successful. This comes less than 24 hours after he told the recently mobilized to complain with, quote, dignity about a lack of equipment, but to happily fight with whatever they are provided, Rusty AKM and all. In Vladivostok, Russian military equipment was recorded loaded on railroad cars and staged for shipment. The equipment is likely destined for Ukraine. Once part of the Soviet Union, the Muslim-majority Central Asian republics have become a home away from home for Central and Eastern Russians, who have sought refuge from police and employer abuse, institutional racism, and poverty. Now the countries have become flooded with Russian citizens fleeing mobilization, 
and Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan taking in thousands. Kazakhstan's interior ministry said the nation would only extradite Russians who have been placed on international wanted lists. The ministry reported that of the 100,000 arrivals in the last week, 65,000 have already moved on to other countries, while 8,000 were able to receive a taxpayer code enabling them to open bank accounts and get a residence. The military commissar shot in Ustilimsk by a conscript earlier in the week has come out of their coma. Russian state media had reported earlier the person had died. The 25-year-old suspect has been identified as Ruslan Zinian. He is being held in solitary confinement pending his first hearing on November 26th. In theory, PMC Wagner could recruit him into a penal unit once he's found guilty and bill the Kremlin $100,000. Clearly, everything is going according to plan. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is no graphic detail in today's report, but if you are sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. Russia's Children's Rights Commissioner, Maria Lvova Bialova, reported that the children forcibly sent to Russia initially hated being there. After re-education, their negative attitudes about Russia have been turned into love. To be clear, the forcible relocation of children from their rightful parents for re-education while erasing their culture and language is called genocide. Russian missiles hit a residential neighborhood in Dnipro, striking when people were asleep in their homes. Three civilians were killed, including a child. Another five have been hospitalized, including a 12-year-old girl. Search and rescue operations continued, with people still buried under the rubble of more than 60 damaged and destroyed apartment buildings and homes. Dmitry Platenchuk, press officer for the Mykolaiv Region Military Administration, reported that a museum and college were damaged in a missile attack in Mykolaiv. There were no injuries from the attack, which happened overnight, but intentionally targeting culturally significant civilian infrastructure, such as museums, is considered a war crime. Chairman of the State Duma of the Russian Federation, Vyacheslav Volodyan, announced they would introduce legislation seeking the extradition of Azov Battalion members released in the prisoner of war exchange and held in third-party countries for extradition under an international warrant. There remains simmering anger over the release of the Azov Battalion leaders, in part because it gutted one of the main reasons the Kremlin gave for invading Ukraine in the first place. Every now and then, a war crimes and human rights story emerges that can put a smile on some faces. Ukrainian troops filmed themselves finding a Russian conscript who wasn't aware of different uniforms and insignia. The Russian soldier who is separated from his unit calmly smokes a cigarette, saying, quote, I'm surprised you guys are here, end quote. The look of happiness turns into shock when he's told that the group is from Ukraine, and it's all caught on camera. In geopolitical news, Belarusian Minister of Foreign Affairs Vladimir Maki claimed that at the United Nations General Assembly meetings last week, European and American officials had secret meetings with him. He claims he was given secret information that could, quote, destroy the United States. When asked to provide insight into the information, he said it was, quote, confidential. Georgia, 
the country, not the state in the U.S., summoned Anatoly Lys, the Belarusian ambassador, to protest Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko's visit to Abkhazia. In 2008, the Russian Federation and Georgia had a war over South Ossetia and the Abkhazia Republic. Russia recognized both regions as breakaway republics, which the world has widely rejected. Armenia has been in a border conflict with Azerbaijan, and its Article 4 request as part of the CSTO Mutual Protection Pact with Moscow was denied. What if you held an anti-Ukrainian rally and no one showed up except the organizers and the press? That's precisely what happened in Sanok, Poland. The Polish, quote, Confederation movement planned the rally that included one person, the keynote speaker. Quick sidebar here, we suggest the organizers should make a total commitment. The recruiting phone number for PMC Wagner is 7-988-322-4337. You can travel the world, fight for Mother Russia, and possibly see Africa. We're told the pay is not bad. The health insurance plan, on the other hand. Yeah, anyway. The Russian-appointed puppet leaders of occupied Kherson, Luhansk, Zaporizhia, and Donetsk are in Moscow for a meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin. It is widely believed they will request immediate annexation. We reported yesterday that the Russian Duma signaled they were in no rush to consider annexation until next week. There was a report that Russia sees little public relation value in recognizing annexation due to a lack of support from the international community. On top of that, the Kremlin is struggling to deal with internal unrest over mobilization. Also, Moscow has not set conditions for the looming defeat in Lehman and the loss of the Putin line east of the Oskil River. But no worries. Everything is going according to plan. In economic news, the British Ministry of Defense reported that since the war in Ukraine started, the, quote, better off and well-educated have been overrepresented among the Russian citizens fleeing the nation. Some economists have predicted that the so-called brain drain, coupled with up to one million COVID-19 deaths since 2020 and the number of soldiers killed in action, will severely impact the Russian economy for years to come. An estimated 700,000 people, including one in eight of the Jewish population, have fled Russia since the start of the war. Up to 265,000 men have left just since mobilization was announced a week ago. The Russian Federation cut an economic deal with the Taliban 33 years after Russian troops withdrew from Afghanistan defeated by the Mujahideen, the precursor to the Taliban. The agreement will ship wheat and oil to the militant group that resides in the landlocked and war-torn nation. Russia forged the deal even though no legitimate government, including Moscow, recognized the Taliban as the government of Afghanistan. Russia has agreed to sell 1 million tons of gasoline and diesel fuel, 2 million tons of wheat, and 500,000 tons of liquefied petroleum gas, or LPG. The deal's value was not revealed, with the payments going through a third-party country due to sanctions. Taras Kochka, Deputy Minister of Economics and Ukraine's trade representative, reported exports to the European Union have increased through August 2022 compared to the year ending August 2021, saying in a TV interview, quote, we have made several percent more exports to the EU than in the first three quarters of 2021, despite the war. End quote. The ruble was unchanged, 
with the exchange rate at 58 for one U.S. dollar. Crude oil prices climbed, with WTI trading at $83 a barrel and Brent at $89 a barrel. United States RBOB wholesale gasoline on the spot market increased to $2.57 a gallon, or $0.68 cents a liter. Chicago SRW wheat futures climbed to $9.13 a bushel for December 2022 delivery. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.